0: Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome to this week's 1% Better, and it is all about uh, the inner game that we play with ourselves, maybe unawares of it, but this hopefully will bring it to the forefront. If you're familiar with the book called The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway, you'll know a lot about what we'll talk about in this episode. The inner game of tennis was, I think it was 30 plus years ago. It was transformative for tennis players and coaches around that time and still holds an awful lot of value in the tennis world to this day. But it's also spun off in different directions. There was an inner game of golf and uh, this one that we talk about today with Jeffrey Lipsis is all about the inner game of selling. And it's fascinating stuff. So much useful information makes a lot of sense. And because it's stood the test of time, I guess, that's probably one of the main reasons why. Because there's a lot of logic behind it and it can help you connect with your self one and self two and know the conversation that's going on between both of them and help you move in the right direction as a result. So this one I recorded a few months back, delighted to be putting it out now. Jeffrey Lipsis is the expert in the area, brought this angle to it, to the whole inner game, and uh, I hope you really enjoy it. Just in general, probably not uh, as fluent with releases of late, and that is partly because of the day job and partly because of other stuff that's going on, but it's all... Uh, The book club stuff, that is going well, so we're getting content out there, um, but we do have more 1% better interviews in the queue and lined up and coming over the next number of weeks. Might take a few weeks off in August, Uh, we're all entitled to a bit of a holiday and we'll be back then. But hey, hopefully you uh, stick with us and continue to enjoy the episodes if you haven't checked out any of the previous ones, they're uh, all there for you on the website. And I'm a bit hoarse because I think I was talking a bit too much today. So I will stop my intros now and hand you over to the interview with Jeffrey Lipsis on The Inner Game. Enjoy. <laughs> Hey folks, welcome to this week's 1% Better interview. I hope this one will leave everybody more than 1% better in, in a few different ways. Uh, I recently read the book, The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. I had probably posted about it a while back and I was able to connect with a few people, but one of them is my guest on tonight's or today's episode. It's tonight for me and it's today for my guest on, on the West Coast in LA. Welcome to 1% Better, Jeffrey Lipsis, isn't it? Thank
1: you. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining and good to hear that you're doing well in LA on, on, the, on the West Coast today.
1: Yes, so we're... All doing pretty good under the circumstances. You just have to uh, live a little more, uh, let's say, consciously.
0: And we'll definitely talk about conscious living and and being more mindful in this. Yeah, and I know we connected a while back, and it's something we were talking about doing for for a little bit. So it's great to great to do it now. And I think now that I've read the book and and know that your focus. Kind of aligns to a lot of the principles in it, and and some of the work you do in in the area of sales is, is something that I want to dig into, and how you use some of the the inner game approaches, methods, techniques uh, to mm-hmm. your to sales advantages that would be interesting. But first, let's let's learn a bit about you, a bit about your career, your your background, your your history.
1: Well, I originally started this journey as a tennis player in college, mm. and I was wanting to improve my tennis, and a book came out called The Inner Game of Tennis. I read the book, and the principles in there helped me tremendously. Um, when I graduated, wasn't good enough to go pro, so I got a real job, which was to be a salesperson. And I noticed a lot of the same principles in the Inner Game book that helped me as a tennis player also helped me as a salesperson. So over the years, about 30 years, I raised my uh, got more and more promotions in my company until I became the vice president of sales and marketing and looked up Tim Galway to see if I could find a way to formally apply his inner game principles to Sales performance, and we could use my sales force of over 100 people as a laboratory to be able to see how inner game principles that were being uh, used in so many different companies and so many different sports by uh, many athletes. Steve, Tim Galway is considered the father of modern coaching. Uh, he's never done anything with selling. And that's a performance activity. So let's see if Intergain can help with that. So I looked him up and we began our journey together of meeting once a year, talking about how Intergain would apply to my sales force and then trying it out in my company. Eventually, it took about a few years. Sales increased 10 times in my company using these inner game sales principles. And I was just so excited with the results I was getting that actually left and sold my shares and went out to uh, work with Tim full-time to bring the inner game of selling to the world at large. And so that's where we are now.
0: Wow, very interesting. So maybe just even looking back to your, your early career, you were, you were an aspiring Tennis player, was that a dream of yours that you wanted to become a, a pro? Was that something that you had uh, from a young age?
1: Yeah, I wanted to be the best that I could be. And uh, I had high rankings. I was one of the best players in the eastern United States in tennis, but it's not really enough to make a living as a pro. One thing I noticed is that the difference between me and a pro was that. It wasn't the shots. It wasn't the individual shots. I could pretty much hit the shots that I would watch them hit on TV. I just couldn't do it 10 times in a row. They would hit the same shot, which I would consider to be a good shot. They would consider to be a mediocre shot just every day like bread and butter. You execute the shot and they would do it 10 out of 10 times. And if I hit that shot once, I consider that pretty good. And so there was a difference in my mindset where I was judging a shot as being good or better than I think I could do. Whereas the pro isn't really thinking about it at all because it's just a very natural shot for them. They count on hitting that nine out of 10 times or 10 out of 10 times. And the point I'm making, Rob, is that there was something in my head that had an idea how many times I could execute that shot before I miss. As a matter of fact, we used to have, I also taught tennis and coach tennis. You have a strategy where sometimes you look at an opponent and you could just tell that. If you get the fourth ball in, you're going to win the point <laughs> because they run out of patience and try to to hit a winner on the fourth point. And if you could just keep the ball in the court a few more times, they're going to miss the last shot, and you're going to win the point. So there's a lot that has to do up here with tennis. And and I said to myself, what if I try to practice? my state of mind, the way I practice a forehand or a backhand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so why don't I, I work on that? Maybe the problem with executing these shots isn't that it's a difficult shot, but more that I noticed that I hit a shot and was pleasantly surprised. So it's my own self-image of what I'm capable of doing was limiting me, and that's when the inner game of tennis came out and said exactly the same thing. Positive thinking is as detrimental as negative thinking because they both set up uh, a judgment. When you judge something to be good, you're setting up the possibility of not doing that thing as being bad.
0: And we'll go into some of the more details of the of the, the 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 book, and obviously the learnings from that. Just interested, when you were playing, you know, at that level, you were playing some, you know, similarly or better players, but they were getting it nine out of ten times, and and you were getting the the shots one or two. What what do you think at that time? Given that the book wasn't out yet, and other others probably weren't, you know. Or or had they already realized that it was a, a mind game that they were overcoming as opposed to, you know, relentless practice that brings you so far. But I think that final, whatever, five or 10 or 1% maybe is, is the mind. How do you think they were already achieving that? What do you think might have been going on for them?
1: You mean the pros that were hitting the shot nine out of 10 times?
0: Yeah, yeah. Before the, you know, before that the formal inner game kind of concepts come out, what What? what yeah. did they figure out their own inner game?
1: It was, I believe, a matter of repetition where they would just drill and drill and drill until they got up to a certain level where they could count on playing. One thing about competition is that it make, you make each other stronger. Your opponent is making you stronger like if i took my two hands and pressed them together it's like a competition both hands are getting stronger hmm. if i take one hand is really strong and the other hand is like oh i'm just going to let it let it happen boom you know the right hand wins but neither hand is building any strength so i believe this is what was happening in terms of the other higher level tennis players as they were just competing with each other, you know, making each other better and stronger over time. Good coaching. But it's inefficient. Yeah. It takes years. And the real beauty is that the learning and improvement takes minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's-
1: so I was so I was looking for a shortcut. Instead of taking years to be able to hit that shot nine out of 10 times, why don't I just change the way I think about my ability?
0: Makes sense. and Yeah, because I think I know from reading over the last while, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell's book where he came out with the 10,000 hours rule, I suppose, where you... You know, your three three hours a day for ten years gets you to a mastery level. I guess some of these guys were probably at that mastery level of just repetition and deliberate practice. Sure, but, but yeah, some of these tools that um, that Tim has come out with was more, as you said, shortcutting it a, a little bit. He, he he talked about in the book the concept of natural learning and and how you would just start kind of connecting in with what what your intuition is telling you and visualizing it and and maybe can you talk to me about how you applied that even in your tennis game initially and, and how quickly you saw improvements
1: right well the natural learning really happens there's examples of it all the time like when we're learning to walk when we're learning to walk we really don't have the concept that we're learning this important life skill here that we really are going to have to do and we have to do it right because it's very important because if we can't walk right, we can't get anywhere. That's not going on in a little toddler who's taking his or her first steps. They're just having fun. They're just imitating mommy and daddy. And it's very natural learning As a matter of fact, it has to be natural learning because if you try to coach a toddler how to walk and get the idea across that falling is bad, they're going to mess up their learning. It's going to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So it's a uh, natural learning is something that takes place all the time. It's like when we learn to talk. I mean, they tell you, do not instruct a child how to talk right. Don't correct them. Mm -hmm. Just let them learn. Because teaching interferes with learning, interferes with natural learning. And so it would be the same thing with tennis. Um, One of the things that I read in Tim's book, which is an excellent exercise, is pretend that you're a tennis pro in a movie Mm. and the camera's only pointed towards you. It's pointed horizontally. They could only see you hit the shot. They can't see where the ball's going Mm -hmm. and your job is just supposed to look the part of a pro where the ball lands is not going to be in the shot. Mm -hmm. And so I would just hit the ball in the way I would like to, without having to worry about whether it went in or not. And because I removed the judgment, which was actually distracting me, I would play better tennis and all the balls would go in, hitting the ball exactly the way I wanted to, would be an example of natural learning in tennis.
0: Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talked about you mentioned that like you're you're visualizing effectively how you wanted to how how you wanted to play out you didn't i don't think you yes. used the word visualization because maybe it wasn't something that was quite buzzwordy or that popular at the time but it was again a lot of these ideas were a bit ahead of their time was yeah. that i guess that's something you would have started to practice and, and and did you quite quickly notice an improvement did you see things you know moving forward and and then just how how did you start to the process of, of, of uh, removing the judgment? I'm interested to know how you start, even at that point, how you stop judging.
1: Well, in the case, I was just doing a little trick where I was saying the camera's pointing towards me horizontally at my hitting the ball, but the camera was not going to look at where the ball landed. So there's no judgment where the ball goes. The only judgment is how I'm hitting it. So I could just focus on hitting it the way I want to look on a movie because I was playing the part of a pro and I didn't have to worry about where the ball was going. So I removed judgment. There's lots of ways of removing judgment, but basically it's uh, focusing and learning from what you focus on. When you're learning, you're not judging. So when a a child is focused and learning how to walk, they're not judging, they're observing their balance, their center of gravity, uh, how strong their legs are. Uh, The lack of judgment is because of the fact that falling is just as much fun as as standing up. Mm -hmm. They're built very short to the ground. So there's
0: no penalty for failure. There's no penalty for walking. Sure. And, and other concepts in the book that were, uh, I, I would imagine, very useful as you, we we'll get into talking about sales. but is, is the kind of self one and self two, the conscious yes. and the unconscious, maybe just yes. for people again, who haven't read the book, just to give them a, a, a baseline of, of what both of those are and how important it is to be aware of them.
1: Sure. Yeah. If you're, Watching somebody play tennis and they happen to be very frustrated and they're talking to themselves, something like, come on, stupid, watch the ball. If you go up to this person and say, who are you talking to just then? They'll say, I was talking to myself. Well, I was talking to myself. So there's an I, which we call self one. and Myself, which we call self two. And at that moment, they're not communicating very well. <laughs> self. So you could ask, okay, who is doing the judging, the directing? Self one. I am. Who's doing the tennis playing? Self two. Myself. Well. For self one, for me to call myself, the tennis playing part of me, stupid, is very wrong and also counterproductive. Because in fact, the myself, self two, which we're talking about, which we could say maybe is the somatic self, is brilliant. There's no physiologist that would be able to describe all the different neuromuscular movements that take place in the few seconds between your opponent hitting a tennis ball and you having to return that ball. I mean, all the different muscles that have to relax and, and contract in exactly the right harmony to be able to, it's, it's just, it would blow the mind of most supercomputers. And here, we're calling it stupid. The second part is that, in fact, myself doesn't really use language. So when you're using words to describe something, that's not the language that self-two speaks. In order to harmonize self-one and self-two, you have to learn the language of self-two, which is much more... Uh, experiential
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and physical and emotional and uh, has to do with feelings rather than thoughts. So that would be self one and self two. So this takes place in everything we do, any endeavor we're trying to improve our performance. We have self one describing what we're trying to do and then self two, which is actually performing the task. And this is true in selling as
0: well. Mm-hmm. So then is it, taking maybe away from tennis, but is it more whatever self one tells self two becomes true? Is that is it as simple as that? So whether it's you're being, you know, you're terrible at tennis, you're stupid, that was a terrible shot, I can't believe what you, you know, th- does that, it starts to believe the narrative and it, it internalize it?
1: Yeah, it, it's more that self one, starts micromanaging. Self one says, you know, I'm really unhappy with what's going on here. So I'm going to take over. And self one might only understand about 10 things in a forehand out of the 10,000 things that need to happen in order to execute it properly. So when self one decides, Okay, I'm going to watch the ball. Well, there's going to be thousands of other things that are compromised (laughs) because self two is now distracted by self one watching the ball. So it's self one encroaches itself in an area that it really has no business or expertise in. And you get a self fulfilling cycle of. Worst performance.
0: So we have the self one and self two, and we've kind of d- uncovered that self two is is where the magic happens. It's really about yeah. trusting self two, letting go the lack of judgment. You know, stopping self one. I telling myself how how rubbish at tennis I am, or whatever the focus yeah. is on, and just to try and get it clear for for folks listening. In the book, and you can maybe talk through some of it. It's it's how does how to communicate with self two then, and I think Jeff, uh, you can call out a couple of the the key approaches. What you need to tell self to or, or or kind of give messages to self two for the best outcomes. Maybe talk a bit about what what they are, because they can be generally applied to anything. I guess
1: it can be generally replied to uh, applied to anything. The Universal formula is that we perform by learning and we learn by observing. So, an inner game coach is an observation coach. So, I'll just run by that again. We perform by learning and we learn by observing. So, as we observe better, that'll make us better learners, which in turn, makes us better performers. What is self-two going to observe on the tennis court? How about where the ball is in relation to the racket? Very important observation. If somebody doubts the ability of their backhand, they say, I have a bad backhand. I really hate when the ball comes to my backhand and I'd be a tennis instructor, I'd hit them a backhand. they go, uh-oh, here comes a backhand. The uh-oh <laughs> is going to distract self, too, from noticing the ball in relation to the racket. The, the eye actually skips when you say uh-oh, mm-hmm. and it compromises awareness. It compromises observation, which then compromises learning which then compromises performance. So as an inner game coach, you would be an observation coach. And take the judgment away by saying, don't worry where the ball goes. Don't worry what kind of shot you're going to hit. I want you to watch the seams of the ball as they come toward you. And just describe to me how the seams are rolling as the ball comes to you, and don't worry about what kind of shot you hit. That's going to sharpen observation, which will enhance learning, which will improve performance.
0: Mm. Yeah, I definitely remember that part in the book where the focus of your attention goes on to not just seeing the ball but trying to really hone in on the actual seams as you said or the, the fur on the ball or, or or even you know your opponent or, or just to really get narrow in because it just brings things down to such more clarity and, and it, in in effect it kind of almost like has a slow motion effect in uh, yes. of time slows down which I thought was mm-hmm. fascinating and kind of it made sense in a way um because you're just getting so so precise it, it, I suppose how does that how does that like work in in reality though and and do you see results so, so straight away and, and maybe even if you were to to kind of compare that to to sales then how would how would that sort of thing work in in a in a different environment to tennis
1: I'm glad you asked <laughs> in in sales the ball you say keep your eyes on the ball we're talking about observation the ball is the customer, and the scenes is the customer's decision process. You see, in in selling, there's two conversations. And unfortunately, salespeople and sales training is only looking at one out of the two conversations. So we'll call it conversation one. Which would be the equivalent of self one, okay, that we were just talking about. Conversation one is the conversation the salesperson has with their customer back and forth, the interaction. And if you go to a sales training course, they're gonna teach you how to improve self one, how to have a better interaction with your customer, which is fine. But there's also a conversation two. Conversation two is the internal buying conversation between the customer's ears, which we call decision-making. Now think about it. Which conversation is more important? One or two? Two. Two. Conversation two is more important. But then salespeople are focused on conversation one. Okay? They're not watching the ball. (laughs) Okay, it's like saying, "Uh oh, I have a bad back end. Uh uh oh, my sales performance. I need to tell the customer all of my selling points. I need to tell the customer my presentation. I need my cu- tell my customer. Did you ever see the TV show Intervention? There, there's a you know what an intervention is when the family and friends gang up on somebody because they have an addiction or they're." Most sales are conducted as if they're an intervention. where the salesperson is just telling the customer all the different things they think the customer needs to know. It's like self one, the tennis player, telling themselves that they need to take the racket back sooner. Okay, but... Self too doesn't respond to language. Self too responds to the feeling of taking the racket back soon. So they're not communicating. I could tell a customer anything I want to, but who knows what they're thinking. One of the biggest insights I had as a salesperson and it was one of the biggest insights that led to my writing this book and talking to Tim Galway came from a sale that I lost. Okay. Because I, I told the customer, I have this really low price. And in my mind, that was a really good thing, low price, good value. But this customer said, Well, then you must be using cheap raw materials and slam the door in my face. (laughs) In his language, in his conversation too, uh, low price means bad product. Two different languages, just like on the tennis court, self one, self two. And that's when I realized I have to learn my customer's language. How do you learn your customer's language? Through observation and asking questions and learning
0: mhm and i guess a question a couple of questions on that that example where you lost the potential sale because you didn't understand his language he wanted he had probably no issues paying a higher price because he he probably equated high price equals you know high quality um but but another customer uh, could have actually thought uh, a cheap price was what he was looking for. So everyone's different, and as you need to to look at everybody on their own merits. How, yeah, maybe talk to me about some of the the tactics or or approaches you use, or or is it is it a body language thing? You mentioned asking important questions, observing how they present themselves. What are the some of the the things that a a salesperson could use to to kind of observe and, and kind of come to a conclusion of how, how they interact with that self too.
1: Right. Well, the, the first thing is setting the right environment. So we say it in game, a salesperson is their customer's decision coach. And what I want to establish is that my purpose is to help the customer make the best decision. Now, if the customer comes around to realizing that I am there to help them make the best decision about this product, whether it's appropriate or not, uh, whether it's an appropriate product for them or not, then we're gonna be working together as a team. And, The customer won't be withholding information from me, which is important because the salesperson is the learner, not the teacher. See, if you're a salesperson and you're committed to learning, you can't lose. I might have lost that sale when I said the product is a really low price, but because I was a learner, I stopped and I thought and I said, well, there's two conversations going on. And I made a whole book out of it. So as as a learner, a salesperson could never lose. And we learn the most when we have customers that feel comfortable telling us, what we, what we need to know in order to help them make the best decision. So it's important to get on the customers on the same page with the customer as a team. So that, that's the first answer to your question. And then the second one, uh, you know, besides going on LinkedIn and seeing what they like or post or looking on social media, seeing, you know, what their priorities are, and their objectives and their values, that's, that's extremely important. You know, just asking them about their journey that they've taken to come to the point where we're having conversation now. Because in tennis, if I'd say to somebody I'm teaching, uh, I want you to watch, pay attention to the trajectory of the ball. That would be a good thing for observation to help the person be a better observer, be a better tennis player. Well, customers have a trajectory too. they've made many decisions up to the point where now they're sitting in front of you and as a salesperson, I like to learn that decision trajectory. It gives me insight into uh how they make decisions as well as uh, how they came to the point to you know, where they are in the buying process so I could learn what they need to know in order to feel best about their decision they're making. The the goal of selling is buying. So a salesperson can have a bad selling performance, but if the customer has a good buying performance, you could still get the sale. I, The company I worked for was a vitamin company. I used to make vitamin products, so I'm a vitamin expert. And I would walk into a vitamin store and ask the clerk a few questions. And sometimes I could tell they don't know what they're talking about. A bad selling performance on their part. But since I'm a vitamin expert, I go to the shelf, I look at the ingredients, and I could buy the product anyway good buying performance because that's the importance of conversation too the conversation going on inside of the customer and customers want to feel comfortable with the decisions they make as a salesperson. I need to learn what the customer needs in order to feel best about that decision.
0: Mm. Fascinating, yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. And uh, I suppose as you talk through it, I can I can see you know I can see a lot of the the similarities between the inner game of tennis and how you would sell. It strikes me that your approach is would never be very pushy, would never be kind of hard selling, and you know must sell at all costs, and and almost you know, I don't know, ethical, uh, unethical ways of just trying to get the sale. It it is very much um, collaborative. Would that be fair to say? Is that part of your uh, overall approach? And is it kind of one of the rules that you would sell by?
1: Yeah, I don't think that pushy selling would even work. I mean, when you think about who who, who has the control, when you say pushy, I kind of think of, well, The salesperson is trying to take control of the situation. But let's think about this for a minute. We're talking about conversation one between me and the customer and conversation two going on between the customer's ears. And conversation two is what determines the sale. Salespeople can't control conversation two because you can't hear it. You know, you don't hear the gears turning inside of your customer's head. So when you think about it, a salesperson doesn't get a sale until the customer decides that salesperson is going to get a sale. The customer has the control. But here's my point it's not about salespeople and customers having control. How much control does the customer have over their own decision-making? Can you control a car with a foggy windshield? No. Have you ever met a customer that's confused, a customer that's distracted, a customer that doesn't have a clear goal? Okay. These are customers that aren't self-aware. And if a customer is not self-aware, they can't, know what needs they have that your product will satisfy. So, so, so pushing this, that, that doesn't work. That's like I said earlier, it's more like conducting a sale as if it's an intervention. How many interventions really work? Very few. Because it has no one's taking into account the receptivity to what's being said. Another downside to being a pushy salesperson is what I call decision sustainability. You see, a salesperson doesn't want their hard work selling to be wasted after they leave. They want a buying decision that's going to sustain past the visit because you want the customer to use the product. After the salesperson leaves, you want the customer to reorder the product. You want the customer to recommend it to friends. You want the customer to chase competitors away. These are all things that have to happen after the salesperson leaves. And if the salesperson got the sale by being pushy and by imposing their will over the customer, well, the reason to buy leaves with the salesperson And then you don't really have a high quality decision that's sustainable, that actually integrated into the customer's beliefs and the customer's values.
0: Very interesting. You mentioned the customer a lot of the times, though, aren't self-aware. And um, and I think I know I interviewed a lady a couple of weeks ago, um, a doctor... Uh, Tasha Yurick is her name and she's a book called Insights and All About Self-Awareness in in Leaders and the statistic is something like 95% think they're self-aware but only 10% actually are. How do you how do you when you're trying to sell to uh customers that have no or lacking self-awareness do you do you work with them to try and help them be more self-aware or do you just kind of realize that okay so maybe what, what what approaches would you take there
1: yeah i mean they don't have barriers it's just a matter of asking questions i mean questions are beautiful things for a salesperson they're the best tool that we have in our tool chest because with questions not only can salespeople uh get a window into conversation B, into the customer's decision process. But the beauty of asking powerful questions is that you can direct a customer's attention onto a particular place. So if the customer is overlooking something or if the customer hasn't considered something, you could ask a question and have them put their attention on that place and make them more more aware, more observant. So I do it with questions
0: definitely questions are the most powerful thing and, and effectively you're you're using coaching approaches as well in in a way you're kind of coaching the customer
1: yeah because the coach doesn't need control the coach sits on the sidelines and it's the the player that actually has to do the performance it's the customer who's the decision maker who really has to determine is this product going to get me what I need? Is this the best answer to my solution? And they have to think about that. And salespeople are are to help make sure that that decision is as high a quality as possible. And like any coach, there's going to be internal barriers to your customer's decision performance. I'll I'll give you an example. If I talk to a salesperson about the importance of trust, And every salesperson will say, Oh, yeah, trust. That's extremely important. I I need to earn the customer's trust. Well, that's outer trust. That's the customer's trust of the salesperson. And, And what I'm saying is, what about inner trust? What about the customer's self trust in their ability as a decision maker? Because the salesperson won't get the customer's trust if the customer doesn't this trust themselves to decide if they could trust the salesperson. So inner trust comes first. And if you're a coach and you've got a player on the field who lacks self-trust, who lacks doubt, you're going to need to address that as a coach. Well, it's the same thing as, as a salesperson, as a decision coach, you want to make sure that the customer has internal confidence; otherwise, it'll compromise their decision performance. Uh, most likely, you'll get a inappropriately conservative decision because the customer didn't trust themselves.
0: I'm thinking if you, if I was a salesperson that have been selling in a different approach for for years, or coming new into the sales game, and they come onto your coaching program to become you know, to learn the inner game of sales. What are the things you've noticed that are the hardest habits for them to change or, or, or approaches for them to, to, to kind of drop the old way and, and adopt a new way? Any experiences on those?
1: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that talk about customer centric selling and they would mix up what I'm talking about with customer centric selling because with with t- customer centric selling is kind of like saying, Well, we've talked enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> it's still the same subject. So, for salespeople to really get out of the way and, and realize that you don't need to know exactly why the customer bought. Mm. You don't you don't need to analyze it. The customer just needs to feel good about their decision, and it's a feeling, regardless of of what what they're thinking. in In sales courses, I don't know about in Ireland, but here in the United States, now there's a new thing where you can get a bachelor of arts degree in sales leadership. And I read these textbooks and conversation to that internal decision process. The technical term is the black box. That's what they call it. You give your presentation, it goes into the black box of the customer's decision process, and you get an answer. Right. Okay. And if I tell a sales, if I say to a salesperson, Okay, that black box, they call it that because it's a mystery. You can't hear your customers' thinking. Who is that more of a problem for, the salesperson or the customer? They say the salesperson. But salespeople can get the sale without knowing what their customer's thinking. But what if the customer doesn't know they're thinking? Because they're distracted or confused or don't have clear goals, not in touch, they're not self aware. That's a bigger problem. So, really, to get salespeople truly focused on the customer's mindset rather than the salesperson's mindset, that's a big thing to a big leap. But um, you know, we do it through role playing and and a lot of exercises.
0: Very good, because I guess you know the stereotypical salesperson may be considered egocentric and you know very driven by their their numbers and what they've their targets they've hit and things so like if you're adopting some of the inner game habits you're letting go you're being not judging as much it's trying to to kind of step away from that that must be difficult though if they're so ingrained in the the hard driving numbers game that they've you know historically had.
1: Yeah, or just wanting approval. I mean, these are all side agendas, whether it's wanting approval, whether it's wanting the customer to think you're smart or getting the customer to trust you or getting the customer to like you. It's missing the point. The point isn't the customer's opinion of you or getting a pat on the back from your manager because you said all the right things. The point is going on inside the customer's head. Did they make the best decision? And that's something that takes continuous practice to focus on.
0: Interesting. Yeah. No. It definitely sounds like a totally different way of of uh, approaching the work. And um, but obviously, how long have you been de- delivering this program? And how long? Obviously, you've been the embodiment of it for a number of years. As you've started to work with. Timothy uh, Galway, how long have you been doing that? Have you seen a lot of success from it?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it took me a few years to write the book. So my book was published about six years ago. So ever since the book came out. Uh, oh, there's one thing I, I want to tell you. Uh, if you. If you get my book, I want to warn you. <laughs> it's a fiction novel. It's a story with a plot. Very good. Now, the reason I did that was for exactly the principles that I was talking about today. Because I'm encouraging salespeople, you need to be an observer, and you learn by what you observe, and you observe from conversation. So instead of teaching the principles in the book, they emerge in the dialogue between the characters. And that way, the salespeople reading the book can actually experience what it's like to learn from observation rather than being taught.
0: I've read a couple of books in a similar vein over the last while, One from a long time ago. I think it was called The Goal or something. And then there was another one called Phoenix Project, I think, recently, where... It, yes, it's, it's a narrative. It's a yeah. story, but the the principles come mm-hmm. out and the learnings are really powerful. So so definitely. Yeah, um, I'll include links to how folks can purchase that uh, online. Oh, great. For sure. Thank you. Before we wrap up but you at the start, we talked a little bit about you mentioned meditation and mindfulness and how important that is. Uh, as yes, I said, it's something very important for me. I've talked to a lot of people on this show about it. How has that become very important for you? What your approaches are? Maybe talk a bit about your experience with that.
1: Oh, very much so. Well, It has to do with what we've been talking about all day, which was awareness. Because one of the distractions to awareness is the superfluous thoughts that enter our mind. And if we have a way to quiet those thoughts, we become more aware, which makes us become better learners, <laughs> which makes us better better performers. And so far, you and I have been talking about that in terms of different tasks. But it also applies to life. Because we we might want to be a certain type of person, but we get caught up in different ego-based side agendas which end up being counterproductive and in meditation you can stay more on course because you you have less of that that ego mind to defend and protect and get off course in order to make sure everybody likes you or everybody thinks you're a great person when you know really what people think about you is a side agenda most of the great people that we look at back in history. Uh, not everybody liked them, but they persevered. You know, I see some people in, in government, for example, they're doing the right thing from their heart and they might get fired. Mm. Um, so are they going to, to come from their heart or they be in touch with who they are or um, do they want to meet the expectations of others and when you meditate Mm -hmm. you you get more in touch with being self-satisfied and requiring less conditions on your own personal value and the less conditions Mm -hmm. you have on your personal value you're a lot more free
0: it's absolutely true and what i found interesting when i was reading the book as well as i was reading it for me meditation and mindfulness was jumping out so many times but it it's not mentioned yeah. once in there the the word meditation yeah. or mindfulness was never yeah. mentioned i don't i don't think it was as popular no. at the time but when you talk about focus detachment letting go you know it's, it's all, all there. there
1: like when you talk about life like joy is inner And the size of your bank account is outer. So you could have joy without a big bank account, and you could have a big bank account without joy. There's two different levels, the inner level and the outer level. So definitely when you're talking about inner gain, you're talking about yourself, you're talking about inner, you're talking about things of value that mean the most to you, which is inner.
0: How quickly did you or have you seen – a change in people that read your book that have gone on on some of the training because you know change takes time and to change, break habits and build new ones takes a period of time uh is it something that you know six months or so before they can really start finding it like i know what even meditation practice for me it's t- took a long time to for it become a very much uh, ingrained yeah. habit
1: uh, usually within the month yeah. Tim and I offer support. So if we're working with a Salesforce and we're introducing these principles, we actually talk to them afterwards and get feedback. How was the interaction? What happened?
0: Uh,
1: maybe you could focus on this. Maybe the customer could focus on that to reinforce it. Uh, take about a month or so of actually going out in the field and identifying the different factors that customers need to really be clear about in order to make the best decisions.
0: Mm, Very good. Yeah, cool. That's very interesting. So Jeffrey, I think we've got through a lot of very interesting stuff. There, really good to get the foundations around the inner game and talking about tennis. And then as we kind of brought it to, to how it's applied in sales, is there any kind of key points that we didn't touch on that you feel that are important? We should, we should, you should get it, get out there before we wrap up
1: uh well tim has a formula for performance which is p equals p minus i and this is taught in every single coaching school that you would go to but it was originally originated by tim it's universal formula and p the first p stands for performance equals potential minus the interference so if i take a, an everyday example for selling. Let's say that there's an intervention somebody uh, friends and family want to come to the rescue of this person who has a drug problem and gambling addiction and so want to persuade this person to turn over a new leaf. So P would be The person's decision performance, the quality of the decision this person makes after talking to the family or friends. The the other p, small p, is the potential that person has for making a good decision, which is inner, minus the interference, which is also inner. So the interference in this example would be the addiction. Okay, so this person's addiction is going to interfere with their potential for making a decision to turn their life around. So performance equals potential minus the interference. It's a universal coaching formula.
0: I've definitely heard of it and it's good to bring it back up. Uh, Good good example. Just one last one. One of the people I, I think when I posted this on LinkedIn that I was going to be interviewing you posted a question and what what the, what, the, what your thoughts are on the future of coaching, how you see coaching in general changing. Is there anything different now or that you see coming and how that will be, um, I suppose, developed over time?
1: Yeah, the coaching field, I, I see in general a more positive uh, direction as far as being much more client-centric where the client really decides – what they want as a goal. Typically, there's different forms of coaching that have been more popular, which are more directive, which, you know, the coach decides what would be the client's best interest. And then uh, it's not really as pure coaching. And now most of the coaching schools are going more towards a, a, a client-centered set of goals uh understanding that if the client is setting a goal that might be questionable well they can learn from that experience too
0: makes sense much more service-oriented coaching to be of service to the client and uh and moving away from more mentoring maybe and 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 consulting type coaching makes total sense uh, Jeffrey, look, before we wrap up, how folks can follow, connect in with you, where they can go to online for some of your content? Uh, any any call-outs there? Well,
1: you can go to the Inner Game website, which is com, and look up uh, the Inner Game of Selling, and you could read all about it, how to reach me. There's a place on the website where you could... Uh, get in touch with me. And my personal email is jeffrey.lipsius at com. And my book is called Selling to the Point and it's on Amazon.
0: Very good. All will be included and uh, hopefully folks will reach out if they have any further questions, Jeffrey, on, uh, on, your, on the story there. Thanks for sharing that. I really enjoyed listening yeah. and learning. Well, from thank me. you
1: very much for having me.
0: No, it was a pleasure having you and stay safe and well and we'll be in touch again, I hope.
1: That sounds great. Okay, thank you. And have a good evening there in Ireland. Thanks
0: so much. Okay. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past and will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free and Interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey. And the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy But only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan. Be deliberate. Take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.